You're listening to Halfway There, episode number 213. Stephanie Roussel and Tasting All the Spices. Are you hungry? Because I'm hungry. Let's grab something. Friends, welcome to Halfway There. This is the show where we have honest conversations with ordinary Christians about today's Christian experience. As always, I am your host, Eric Nevins. Thank you so much for being here. I genuinely appreciate it. You know, I don't you probably don't know this, but I literally pray for you every before every episode, before we actually hit the record button, uh, because I really hope that the conversation that we're having is going to be a blessing to you and encourage you and remind you that God is there no matter what you're going through. So I hope that uh, that is is meaningful and powerful to you. If you haven't had a chance to sign up for our mailing list, go out to halfwaytherepodcast.com. I'll make sure you never miss an episode. Uh, you can just check it out there. And of course, it show, the show notes have links to everything that we talk about uh, in our episodes every single week. Today, we have a great guest. Uh, she is a wife, a mom, a podcaster, a public speaker, a writer. She does everything, right? She's she's out there, and she's got a really interesting take on all those things. She's also a former women's ministry director. So our guest is Stephanie Roussel. Stephanie, welcome to Halfway There. Thank you. It's so fun to be here today, Eric. Thank you. It is a pleasure, and I'm really glad to have you. So I want to hear more about all those things, but tell us a little bit about what, where you're at, where God has you right now. Oh, wow. That's such a great question. How much time do I have? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I think God keeps us on our toes. And so I think I am on my toes right now. And in this season of life, I think we are all on our toes, aren't we, in one way or oh, yeah. another. Whether it is my son going to college, my firstborn is going oh. to college. So that's one big walking on toe on our toes right here. And I think you can relate to that. Yeah. Whether it is um, you know, just navigating life, what it's gonna be like uh for his sister who's staying home, and then that's on the home front, and then launching a brand new ministry with people who are following me because um of what the Lord is doing. So that's really, really exciting and terrifying and like absolutely so much fun. And then uh just also working on the podcast and having such a blast meeting amazing people and uh sharing their stories kind of the way you are doing too. So lots going on. I love it. Yeah, we have a lot in common, and I think that's really cool. So uh, yeah, I totally have one going off to college this year. And if you had told me in 2002 when she was born that she'd be going to college in the middle of a global pandemic, I wouldn't have believed you, right? <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> so yeah, that's uh, that is very interesting, and of course the podcast and launching launching some stuff, which is cool. Actually, for me, if you had told me when my son was born in two thousand and two, he would be going to college in the midst of a pandemic in America, that would have uh, blown my mind because right. I'm not even American. So I never thought my kid would go to college in the states. Who knows where God leads us? <laughs> indeed, indeed. Okay, yeah. So that's that's a really great segue. You grew up in France, right? I did. I, you can probably hear it. I still have that French accent I can't get rid of, despite trying for almost three decades now. Uh, it's beautiful. Uh, did, don't, don't get rid of it. You. It's great. <laughs> Thank you. I did grow up in France, uh, completely French. Just probably a lot of the cliches you can think of might apply. Hopefully not all of them, 
depends how much of a Francophile you are, but I uh, grew up in France, typical middle-class family, uh, atheist, very, very strongly atheist, very intellectual. Um, I think a lot of the French, I joke that the French tend to think of themselves as the best in the world, mm-hmm. uh, which I think we're famous for just that tad of arrogance. Um, the only disclaimer I could say is that Sometimes it's true. <laughs> <laughs> hey, less Americans have that same feeling, right? Like we, we sort of, uh, we, that, you know, make America great again, just as one example is sort of our, our hubris, right? Well, I guess in some ways it's, you know, it's, it's in human nature. And yeah. so I uh, grew up there as an atheist and prided myself on not needing anyone or anything and was very self-sufficient, capable, thinking that um, actually really having a grudge against people of faith and religion in particular, because I really felt that this was a crutch for the weak, that when you are strong and self-sufficient, you really don't need anyone. And it's a dog-eat-dog world out there, and uh, we can manage on our own. Yeah. And here I am, uh, you know, many, many years later with a very different worldview, obviously. Absolutely. Well, okay, so I want to hear about all those transitions, but I want to dig into what you said about growing up as an atheist, because... Uh, that's something like, to be honest, I don't hear a lot of that. Right. So a lot of the people who come on the show, you grew up as Christians or they, you know, they found Christ later, but very few of them would actually just say I was an atheist and I just didn't, didn't care. Right. So that's a, that's a commitment that you made or maybe it was just the water that you were in. Like, is that what it's like the, the culture that you grew up in or what? Like, Cause most of us don't know what it's like over in France. Right. Uh, Probably both, I would say. Yes, it's the waters I was swimming in. So yes, you absorb some of that. But at some point you do make a choice. And, uh, you know, our kids, obviously, I I feel what you're saying with what it's like to grow up in a Christian environment, because that's what we gave our children. And at the same time, I, I, that's the waters they've been swimming in, but I've always wanted to challenge them to choose faith as their own choice, not because that's what mom and dad believed. And in the same way, I grew up in atheism because that's what my parents uh, were promoting. And so, you know, when people say I'm an atheist because I want to have to make a choice, well, you are making a choice. Every, yeah. I mean, atheism is a worldview as much as anything else. And so I did grow up in it. I, it suited my very self-sufficient tendency to be completely honest with you. Um, And I think it only highlighted the fact that weakness is something to be uh, rejecting every step of the way and you cannot, weakness can never be embraced. And that is so very much the opposite of what Christ Mm -hmm. teaches and has role modeled for us. So Yes, I grew up atheist. It's something I was embracing. Stephen Hawking was my hero, for example. I was reading him because I really believed in that whole self-sufficiency thing again. And um, atheism, I think, is extremely deeply um, rooted in humanism, except that it doesn't hold water from um, from a philosophical perspective because you, even as an atheist, you are very quickly confronted to your own limitations, whether you want to admit it or not, we are finite and human, and we are faced with questions that atheism simply cannot answer when it comes to morality in particular, or ethics, uh, or the existence of God, or how do you justify that people that are actually smart have a faith system? Because if all the dummies in the world were religious and all the smart people were atheists, that would make atheism much more comfortable, but it's really not the case. And so that's what I came to discover slowly. Yeah. Very interesting. I would love to know 
Um, so let's just in your daily life, what what was your feeling about kind of the world and um, and kind of just going about it? Because I think one thing you hear from Christians a lot um, is that well they've you know they've got a God shaped hole right? They take that line from I think it's Augustine. Um, it's actually Blaise Pascal. It's a French. Oh Pascal, philosopher. yeah, but didn't he? I I feel like Augustine said something like that. But anyway, yeah, it, it might be Pascal. Pascal was French, right? Yes, he yeah, was. Yeah, that's yeah. why you know that. Okay, so, um, but so we hear anyway. We hear that idea all the time, right? And so we think, oh well, people are just wandering around, not believing in God, and it's so sad, right? Or it's so like they just must be miserable. Were you miserable? Absolutely not. That's the thing. Yeah. I was perfectly happy. I was not seeking God. Um, you know, and I think everybody's story is different, and. My husband's story is extremely different. He was seeking God and I, you know, God promises when you seek him, you're going to find him. But on occasion, God shows such grace that he reveals himself to those who do not even seek him. I was not seeking him. I was not interested in the things of God. I was very content and happy in my atheist worldview, but God nonetheless made himself irresistible to me. And that is something that is extremely humbling and that I would not trade for the world because it has taught me to rely on him much more than on my own self-sufficiency that he has completely shredded. And I'm grateful mm. for it. It used to be my self-sufficiency used to be my God through atheism. And now I have learned God's sufficiency and to cling to him. Is it comfortable? <laughs> no, not always. <laughs> uh, is it dangerous and scary? Absolutely. Would I trade it for anything else? Oh gosh, no. I mean, no, right. absolutely not. Yeah, I've been really, um, you know, you say it's not comfortable. I've been very taken recently with the fact that Israel means one who wrestles with God, right? Like that whole absolutely. idea, I don't think it's supposed to be comfortable. I think the whole thing is that what God wants is us to walk with him. And, you know, that's, it's not that he's going to solve on. everything. Yeah, right. Yeah. He's not going to solve everything. He's just going to be with us. Like, oh, okay, that's interesting. Yeah. Uh, okay. But those battles, you know, if you look, if you look at Jacob and you know became becoming Israel, I think we do have some defining battle moments yeah. in life with the Lord. And once we surrender to Him once and for all, yes, there are subsequent battles, but they're never as intense as that one initial battle for surrender. And we are battling, that's the thing, we're battling against surrender when actually what our heart truly needs is to surrender to God. And so when we come to that realization, I think that battleground is becomes holy and sacred. And it never is quite that intense ever again because we have tasted surrender, even mm -hmm. if that means we're walking with a limp for the rest of our lives, it's still worth it. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so how did that happen for you? What was... What made the shift for you? Was it quick? Was it short or well, long? Okay, so I came to the U.S. as a foreign exchange student when I was 16 years old. Uh, and at that point, I was, again, this very, very strong atheist. But again, I was just 16 or 17, right? I was just a kid. Uh, even though if you remember 16 and 17-year-olds, they think they know everything and they're on top of the world. And so uh, that invincibility of teenagehood is, is something quite amazing. But I wanted to learn English because I wanted to be in business. And you can't be in business mm. without having really good English and the French school system wasn't teaching me what I needed. And so I um, ended up spending a year, my senior year of high school in the U.S. And lo and behold, I ended up living with a Christian family, which was my very first exposure to actual Christians, not just 
how Christians or people of the faith were being portrayed through the atheism pen of my atheist uh, authors. And so for the first time, you see, that's the thing too, is that I had never encountered Christians. So it made atheism very comfortable because I was never truly challenged in that worldview. Because in France, unfortunately, even to this day, there are very few Christians. And now, you know, 30 years later, we live in a world that has the internet, which it didn't at the time. So of course, we're much more bombarded by other worldviews, which is both a curse and a blessing. Um, but at the time, it wasn't the case. So I had met Christians, but only through the pen of atheist writers. And so it wasn't a very glorious oh, picture. Yeah. And I wasn't aware of it. And that actually has taught me to always consider worldviews from their adherence perspective. So I'm reading what mm. Muslims say about Islam from a Muslim perspective, yeah. not what Christians say that Muslims say, because it really is very life-changing. So for me... Meeting those Christians, I assumed initially, well, that's because they're Americans. And I thought everybody in America is a Christian. Yeah, I was going to ask. I got to ask about that. So sorry, I'm going to pause you right there. Like, what what was your impression of Americans? Was it that they're all Christians? Like, America's a Christian nation? Well, initially, yes. Before I came to the States, that's what I thought. Because um, that's what, I don't know, I guess that's what the media was portraying to some extent. And I, I can see... By French standards, yes, America, especially 30 years ago, was still a very Christian nation. Um, things might be shifting a bit these mm, days, but comparatively, um, at the time, it, it really was by comparison to France that has totally renounced any religion worldview since the French Revolution 200 years before. So we had been swimming in 200 years of secularism in much more pronounced ways than the U.S. ever had. And so, yes, the U.S. was by French standards, you know, in the French culture, we're considered a Christian nation. So, uh, but Christian as in religious, not necessarily truly faithful people who would go to church, people who would put on their good dress on Sundays, that kind of thing. And so it didn't surprise me that my American mom and dad called themselves Christians. I just thought it was part of the culture, but the truth is they truly were Christians. And what happened over the course of my year with them Because I was uprooted from my own environment, my culture, my language, I was forced to take a step back from my own culture, which is something that I highly recommend for anyone to do at some point, to have at least a season in life where they are thrown in an environment that is so completely different that it forces them to evaluate their own choices and their own identity in light of a completely different context. We don't realize how much culture affects our identity Or if I may actually to phrase it better, how much culture affects the behaviors that we think shape our identity. Our identity is deeper than our behaviors. However, when we are in a culture that we're very familiar with, we don't think twice about our behaviors too much. And so we think that's our identity. But being uprooted from all of that forces you to reevaluate all of this culture, behaviors, identity. And that's what I wasn't anticipating. No one can prepare you for that. And being thrown into this at a fairly young age of 17 forced me to reevaluate pretty much every aspect of my life. Uh, I was going to school all of a sudden with kids I had never met in a language I didn't really understand, Uh taking classes I had uh, no idea 
what I was going to do with. Um, and, and in this family that had three young children at the time, they had three toddlers and they had no business taking on a 17 year old girl, except that they were telling me God was, had told them to do that. And I was like, yeah, right. Who's that? <laughs> um, but over the course of time, they they allowed their life to be altered by my presence. They would make room for me. I wasn't just rooming and boarding there. They truly were creating relationships. And they, the way I like to say it is that they lovingly and respectfully earned the right to speak into my life and to start telling me about God. They never pushed God or anything faith-related at me, but because they were loving, because they were kind, because they were transparent. One thing that struck me the most with them is that they actually were very normal people. They would argue as couples do in front of me sometimes, but they would also reconcile. They were imperfect and they had no problem admitting it, which was so foreign to me. I come from a highly dysfunctional home where um, my dad is an alcoholic. He had a bunch of affairs. My mom was trying to work several jobs. She wasn't doing well either. And so, and they were divorced at the time. And so seeing a couple fight I was used to that. Seeing them reconcile, I had never seen that. Being honest with each other, um, daring to apologize to me when they did something wrong, as small as it might be, daring to apologize to each other, teaching their kids to be kind to each other and to seek forgiveness. These were things I had never seen before. And so that's what I'm saying when I'm saying I was thrown in a completely different context than mine that forced me to consider values and worldviews that... I had never taken seriously. Yeah, that's really interesting. So it sounds like they were very vulnerable with you and that that vulnerability um, maybe was surprising because you hadn't really experienced that before. Exactly. So it was a completely different and new flavor for me. Um, I mean, my podcast is called Gospel Spice. So I like to talk about, you know, spice yeah. stuff. And in this case, they were ta- they were allowing me to get a taste of a completely different spice set. And it was very revolutionary for me and it earned them the right, even though I wasn't, I wouldn't have consciously worded it that way. It earned them the right to, to tell me about the underlying reason behind their vulnerability, which was their strength in God. They may have been weak by human standards, but they were strong in God. And this was completely foreign to me. So... Uh, how did you eventually then give your life to Christ? What what happened? Right. So over many conversations with them, um, I slowly became aware of the claims of Christ and not through the atheistic worldview, but what Jesus had truly claimed. And because for me, God and Jesus were kind of one and the same. I didn't differentiate the two. A lot of people say they believe in God and then they come to Christ. For me, it was a package deal. Um it was one and the same. So I started reading the Bible because they were saying, you know, there was good stuff in there. It didn't make any sense. It was completely dry, absolutely boring, hated it, uh, which is interesting because now it's totally my passion. But uh-huh. that, you know, changes our hearts. And um, I very much, I pretty quickly became convinced about the truth of the resurrection. And that, oh gosh, Eric, that bothered me to no end. Really? I did not want the resurrection to be true. I wanted it to be a myth. I wanted it to be an invention. I had no problem with Jesus being a good teacher, but the exclusivity of his claims, when he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, no one comes to the Father but through me. Uh, when he, I mean, his claims are pretty outlandish. 
okay. unless they're true. Take me into that for just a second, because uh, I think for some of us who've been Christians all our lives, like like me, right, you know, growing up in the church, we hear that and we know that, right? We know that up here, but it doesn't hit us the same way. So why did, why were those things uh, astounding claims? Well, I was very, you know, I'm going to borrow from C.S. Lewis with the whole Lord, liar, or lunatic. And yes, I'm yeah. sure you're familiar with that. But if you truly take the time to ponder this, people, well, first, people don't raise from the dead. It just doesn't happen. And for I, I have, because I had a very humanistic and naturalistic worldview, I mean, resurrections just simply don't happen. Uh, right. So therefore, the resurrection did not happen. There's just no way around it. Therefore, there's another explanation. But when you stack them up with, you stack up those facts, the way the disciples were changed, the way Jesus claimed that it was going to happen, it's mind-boggling that anyone would make such claims and still be sane. Again, because I value the intellect. There's absolutely nothing that would remotely suggest that Jesus was stupid or a fool. No one, like atheists don't say that. Atheists have zero problem uh, with Jesus being a good teacher. They just have a problem with him claiming to be God. They think he was probably a lunatic, you know, on this, but not foolish, not stupid, just a little. Maybe deluded. Deluded. Yeah. deluded. And I was very comfortable with that explanation. And even the fact that he would be a good role model. I mean, yes, he was deluded when he was talking about himself, but that didn't mean he didn't have wisdom on other topics like the Sermon on the Mount and things like that. But the thing is, the extravagant clarity of the Sermon on the Mount cannot come from a deluded mind, no matter how smart he is. So there is more to Jesus than intelligence. There is more to Jesus than being a charismatic leader. Because if you're following Jesus because he's smart and he's a charismatic leader, I mean, you have a dime a dozen people you could follow. Right. But inspiring charismatic leaders who have died, there's a bunch of those, who have resurrected, that narrows down your possibilities right there. <laughs> right. And so for me, again, it, it, I really stumbled on the resurrection as being my, my, my stumbling block. And for months, I tried to explain it away. But the thing is, the one thing that, you know, for people who have stopped being awed by the person of Christ, I would say, honestly, fall on your knees and ask the Holy Spirit to rekindle that love because you're missing out if if you do not see jesus as the most glorious beautiful lover of your soul the one with whom you are invited into the spiritual union through the the power of the holy spirit if you're missing out on that what i'm describing can be really real you just need to ask the holy spirit to do that work to make you fall in love with Christ again. The problem with tasting spices for too long is that you lose your ability to taste. And with Christ, I think he woos us deeper into the discovery of who he is, but we have to be willing. If it's become stale, you ask him to make your relationship with him exciting again. And that, I, I mean, this is something I've yet to see him not answer. He, he does that every single time. It, it might take time, but yeah. as we said, you know, it can be a wrestle. It can be a battle of surrender, um, but it's worth it. So for me, I came to that conclusion that the resurrection was a historical fact. Oh, Eric, I hated it. <laughs> I absolutely hated having to come to that conclusion, but because... The Lord 
has blessed me with intellectual integrity, I couldn't deny the facts. I had to accept that it was true. And it's a long story of how I came to that conclusion. Um, I actually published an article about that that I could le- link in the show notes if yeah, you want. That'd but, be great. Uh, top 10 facts about the resurrection. But, and it's, it's very simple. But if again, there's nothing you haven't already heard. But if you take time to ponder them and not just gloss over them, you're allowing the Holy Spirit to work in you. You're entering that battlefield. You're not, you know, skirting it like we often do. We often skirt the battles that God invites us in. Uh, but if you don't, if you actually enter the battlefield, you'll meet him there and you'll find him there. And so my problem, that's where my battle that began, because here I am convinced that the resurrection is a historical fact, which is a very unsettling place to be for an atheist, um, you see, the wooing of the Holy Spirit was real, but I couldn't put words on it. I didn't understand what was happening. And I remember fighting it because I did not want to embrace God because I wasn't sure he was trustworthy. It's one thing to, believe, to, to come to the fact that historically Jesus rose from the dead. It's another to take a step of surrender to a God that you don't know well enough to know if he's going to be trustworthy. So my battle also had to do with the fact that I thought I was most trustworthy, more trustworthy for my own life than he was because I didn't know him. And the battle came because I realized there's... The only way to trust someone at some point is to actually give them a chance to be trusted. It's kind of like chocolate. I can describe chocolate to you until I'm blue in the face, but if you've never tasted it, you have no idea what I'm talking about. There comes a point where you're going to have to taste chocolate for yourself. I can tell you it's the best thing in the world. Uh The only way for you to agree with me or not is to taste it and decide for yourself. You have to experience it. Exactly. Yeah, That's what this whole show is about, right? This is why we talk about today's Christian experience. Absolutely. And so for me, it was, am I going to dare to experience God, regardless of where that leads, even if that leads in a direction that I'm not comfortable with, or am I going to stay in my comfortable atheist worldview with that huge question mark above my head about where to put the resurrection? What box can I put it in? And the alternative would have been to bury it in the sand and forget about it, which I could have done. But again, intellectual integrity forced me to consider it. So I came up with the lousiest conversion story in the history of mankind, which is that one day, because I was literally exhausted of fighting God. And again, that's why, the, you know, you mentioned Jacob slash Israel. I can really relate to him. I was so exhausted of fighting him, wasn't sleeping well. I was wrestling with doubt. I told God, okay, I'm tired. I'm literally tired. This was the week I was taking the SATs. And so I really had bigger fish to fry than deciding on God. I had the SATs to take, right? (laughs) um, I told God, I'm pretty sure you're out there at this point. I'm not totally sure, but pretty sure. I'm going to give you one week to prove yourself. Like, see, can you hear the arrogance even in that? Um, For one week, I'm going to open the door and let you show me what life with you looks like. I'm I'm opening, I'm accepting the invitation for you to let me experience you. However, God, because I am still in control, if I don't like it after a week, I'm taking my life back. See how pathetic that is? (laughs) (laughs) But that's my story. And so, so I did. And Eric, I know it's going to sound cliche, but the peace that came of not having to wrestle with what I had known to be true 
in my heart, but was refusing to admit because of pride, because of fear, because of arrogance, you name it, it was there. Um, the peace that I felt because all of a sudden, you see for a year, for almost a year, this was towards the end of my year in the States, um, I had been accumulating facts about God that I had slowly come to see were true. But I had been fighting it because they didn't work with my atheism. And so I had been fighting them and I had been accumulating a lot of stress of having to fight all of those battles in my own mind. And so all of a sudden for a week, I'm taking down my shield and I'm just embracing it. I'm telling you, Eric, the peace and the rest, rest, uh, there's no other words, to know that for a week, I didn't have to fight all of these questions anymore. I could just rest and I could just experience them from the side of belief as opposed to having to fight them from the side of atheism. It it was life-changing, just the rest. And yeah, just that. And then so one day, about five years later, uh, I'm having a similar conversation to this one with a friend and she asks me what happened at the end of the week, right? Yeah. And then I looked at her and I was, you're right, the week is up. I I never thought of it. This was years later where I, I never even considered taking my life back because the peace and, and all of a sudden I had tasted the chocolate. There was no going back. I had allowed him to show me the, 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 the very first stages of his beauty and the peace that he promises. Um, and so, so that was it. I love that. I tasted the chocolate and there's no going back. That's, that's amazing. Yeah. You, you sounds like you just were like, I'm giving you my life for a week. And then you never came, you never like was thought about it again. Right. You're just like, right. By the time the week was up, it was five years and it was a bit late. At that point I was fully committed. (laughs) You were in very good. I love that. Well, I bet your host family was pretty excited. Yes. So they were pretty excited, except this was the end of my year with them. Uh So I literally came to faith in June. I literally got baptized two weeks later. Um, right before I went back to France, because then I went back to France to pursue college. And I was convinced I was the very first French Christian ever, because I had never heard of a French Christian. I mean, bless Pascal (laughs) that we mentioned. Yes, he's taught in French schools, but not the Christian side of things. We hear about his math abilities, about his philosophical abilities. We, in the French schools, we're never taught about his Christian worldview. And so I had never met a Christian. It actually took me about two years to find a Christian church in Paris because there was not a whole lot of them at the time. And uh, so, yeah, my, my American mom and dad at the time were sending me mail. It was still snail mail. This is all pre-email. Uh, that dates it. Gosh, God, this is old. <laughs> <laughs> um, and yeah, so just one day at a time. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so, well, so it took you a while to find some people. How did you grow during that time? Like, were you, so, because discipleship, obviously, you and I think both agree, is super important, right? So how did you, you know, get discipled or maybe did you stagnate or what happened? Oh, yeah. Yeah. No, I don't think I grew a whole lot. That was part of the reason why I wanted to get baptized as soon as possible because before I left the States, because I was anticipating a season of loneliness and dryness. I wasn't really expecting to be surrounded like I had been mm-hmm. by American, my American mom and dad, by the church family that they, they were a part of. And so honestly, these were hard years and uh, made a lot of, you know, 
lot of mistakes. I, I have a lot of compassion for people who come to faith, but then maybe their spiritual life is um, kindled, but they still make, they sin a lot. They still make a lot of very poor choices. And as a Christian, it's really oh. hard to, in the initial steps of your faith, to still make a lot of mistakes and honestly, a lot of very sinful choices, because then you feel, how could God forgive me when I know better? So I really have a lot of compassion for the for the Christians that struggle with sin, even uh, as as young believers. Uh, but for me, it was this process of my American mom and dad sending me a lot of letters, and uh, they actually set up my very first email account just so they could email me. This is in the early nineties. Wow! Uh, so they set that up for me. So really, I think they were trying to disciple me this way. But then finding this Christian church, and interestingly, it was. Um, it was a church made up of really older people. Uh, very few young people in, in France were interested in Christ. But there was this one young family who happened at the time to have two young girls. And they reminded me an awful lot of my American mom and dad, but they were French. And so they kind of took me under their wing. And that was the first time that I was being discipled uh, mm. since I, I had come to faith, really. Yeah, that's such an important thing. You you kind of have to have that. I was curious how you how you got it. Um, Lots of books. Otherwise, I mean, honestly, and I see this with a lot of people that are lonely Christians, even around the world today, who yeah. may not have access to other flesh and blood Christians, even though, again, I think with the internet, things might be different. But um, I think I've been discipled by a lot of people who had been dead for centuries, reading Augustine, you were mentioning yeah. him. And even though it was way above my pay grade, I probably didn't understand a third of what I was reading, <laughs> but that's okay. The Lord uses it. So I, a lot of books, lots of reading. Yeah. Yeah. I, I do have problems with Augustine too, but that's, that's, uh, <laughs> but he, you know, he's one of the luminaries of the faith. Yeah. Was there anybody who stuck out to you besides him or any, was there a book that really helped you? Yeah. So, Josh McDowell's uh, More Than a Carpenter was very instrumental. Um, C.S. Lewis, again, I started reading pretty early on because I came across one of his quotes that said that when he came to faith from atheism, right? So I felt a little bit of uh, uh -huh. kindled, you know, kindred spirit with him in a very humble sort of way. Um, he says that when he came to faith from atheism, he was, I quote, the most reluctant convert in all of England. Yeah. And I definitely felt like I was the most reluctant convert in all of France. And so I felt that kindred spirit with him, even though jokingly, the French and the Brits, we don't have much of a love story. Right. Yeah. So it's kind of interesting that one of my dead mentors, quote unquote, was British. God has a sense of humor with that because this French girl uh, wasn't very fond of anything British, uh, which has changed. But yeah. <laughs> so C.S. Lewis, Josh McDowell, I think very early on were quite instrumental for me. Yeah, that's a good one. Um, I remember reading that as a as a teenager. Uh, very cool. Well, uh, okay, so you get discipled. You eventually came back to the United States, and so I don't know. Maybe we're skipping a lot of a lot of time there, but I'd love to hear um, kind of how that happened, and then how you started Gospel Spice. Yes. So yes, you're skipping a lot because we've been in the States for about five years and I've been a Christian for close to 30. So you're skipping quite well, a fill, few years fill in, in there. Fill that in uh, for us just a little bit. Just the, the Reader's Digest version is that we 
we're in France for a few years. So I met my husband. We started living in France. And then the, we felt that we wanted to move back to his home country in North Africa. So we were there for about a decade. And then we lived in the UK. So when I'm saying that I really changed my relationship with all things British, I did so much so that we lived in London for some time. Oh, wow. And then we lived in the south of the States. And we've been here in Pennsylvania for just about five years now. And uh, this is the first time that... I was in full-time ministry because I became the women's director for my church. So, which is interesting for this atheist to now come full circle and yeah. being the one uh, in love with discipling others and bringing the word because the Lord kindly developed in me um, a love for teaching. And so I've been teaching, you know, we started actually a church in Paris uh, in the early 2000s. It was part of an English-speaking church where all of a sudden those English-speaking staff are realizing that they are surrounded by about 8 million French-speaking Parisians and maybe they should do something about that. Um, and so I was, you know, privileged to be on the team that started a French language service downtown Paris. Uh, it was a bit of a, I guess, um, outreach for this, this British community to do. And so I've always taught scripture in English primarily and then in French some. And so coming to the States five years ago, um, through my husband's job. That's just the, you know, that was the natural route to do that. Yeah. Um, was a big change also for our kids, as I was saying, and I never thought my kid would go to college in the States. Um, that wasn't the plan again, but God always has a different plan. And so here we are now stable for a season after moving around a whole lot. Uh, and all this moving around, Eric, it has given me that appreciation for the importance of culture in deciphering scripture. Because I've seen people mm. in different continents and different languages approaching scriptures through their own cultural lens, which we all do. We're just not aware of it. Yeah. You approach scripture as an American. Right. I, I'm not sure what I approach scripture as. I might think I'm a bit of a mess myself. <laughs> but I guess initially I approached it as a French person. Um, and I've watched others approach it from their own cultural perspective, whether it is language or... Um, you know, the, the surrounding culture around them. And so the importance of the language, the importance of your all, your, your prejudices or everything that you're bringing to the text that you're reading to the relationship you're creating with those people on the page, because we all have, yeah. when we dig into scripture, it sounds a little weird, but you and I, we do have a relationship with Jacob slash Israel. We do have a relationship with Moses, with Paul, with Peter, and that relationship would probably be different if we met them face to face because we read into their behaviors our own culture. And so I've learned to try to take my own culture out of the equation, which you're forced to do when once again you're, you're thrown in an environment where your culture is not the grid that you need to decipher what's happening around you. Yeah. When you live in Africa for about a decade, you have to throw away a lot of Western mindsets. And that's a good thing. And when we enter scripture, we have to throw away a lot of our Western 21st century mindsets as well, because the Bible is rooted in a Middle Eastern culture, right. whether it is from the days of David or from the days of Jesus, it's very different. And so when we forget that, we're going to miss a lot of the spices. We we keep throwing garlic salt at scripture when it's begging for cardamom and cumin and cinnamon to have yeah. this explosion of flavors. And so with Gospel Spice, with the podcast, uh, I'm trying to 
come alongside you and create a recipe as we read scripture, where I'm trying to stay away from the all-purpose garlic salt of the 21st century Western culture. And I'm trying to add those splashes of cinnamon and cumin and cilantro, because you will then experience Jesus in his own culture. I think that's fantastic. Okay. So, sorry, we skipped over a whole bunch, but you lived in Africa for 10 years? Mm-hmm. Tell, tell us about that. How did that shape your faith? Like, is there a story well, that, that like, uh, really ex- exemplifies that? I would say what has blown my mind is the beauty of a believer who knows the cost to his or her faith and is still choosing to go ahead with it. Mm. It's something that saddens me deeply here in the American church because from, from Africa, I mean, after the UK, we moved to, to the US and uh, where there's very little cost to being a Christian even yeah. today. Um, maybe it's changing, maybe it's going a little, but honestly, there's not a whole lot of cost right now to being a Christian in the States. Uh, more than there was for sure, but not nearly as much as other places. And uh, when I've seen... I remember a story of a, a young woman who chose to embrace Christ, but her family came from a different faith and this was not taken very well. Um, she experienced rejection by her family. She had to move out. She had to find a place to to live on her own in a culture that doesn't value single women living on their own. You're supposed to stay with your mom and dad until the day you get married. Yeah. And, um, uh, she couldn't do that anymore because her parents were literally throwing her away because they assumed. So that's the thing. Because again, people outside of the Christian faith assume things as much as Christians assume things of other worldviews. It works both ways. So that means as a Christian, when you're trying to approach someone from another faith, not only do you need to overcome your own prejudices and assumptions, but you need to know that they come with prejudices and assumptions too as much as, but they may not be aware of it or willing to overcome them as much as you are. But sometimes with a lot of humility, you have to admit they might be willing to overcome it even more than you do. But um, to realize that her parents thought that her embracing a different worldview than the one she had been brought up in was a rejection of their upbringing of her. They read her decision as a rejection of her culture, of her identity, in her family, of her roots, when it wasn't any of those things. She was only embracing Christ. She wasn't rejecting her mom and dad. She wasn't rejecting her education or her culture. So she was trying to figure out, and I think that's the case in a lot of believers who live in a who live as, as Christians in a minority culture where being a Christian is is the minority where you have to figure out what it means to be a Christian in a society that is majoritarily something else and in France I have to figure this out because yeah. as a Christian in France this is a culture that is majoritarily atheist and in Africa it might have been you know Islam or animism or a host of other faith but it wasn't Christianity yeah. And so having to decipher what it means to be 
a citizen of a country that rejects Christianity and embraces another faith, you're still a citizen of that country. You're still paying taxes. You're still living by the cultural mores, by dressing the way people expect you to dress, by speaking the way people expect you to speak, by showing respect to your family, by eating the local foods. But you're a Christian. And that's exactly what Paul teaches is how, you know, it, what Paul teaches in his letters is so key to deciphering life as a believer in a minority culture because he teaches us to embrace the culture but to reject the pieces of the culture that are rooted in a pagan faith. Right. And that's hard to do. Uh, if you read the history of Israel, you know, from literally from oh, yeah. Solomon who started erecting shrines all the way to, you know, Josiah and who was trying to like literally yeah. Josiah, who's 300 years after Solomon, was trying to take down the shrines that Solomon had built. Solomon, the wisest man who ever lived, built shrines to idols. How do you function in a country, in a, in a nation that builds shrines to idols, which America does a lot. I mean, yeah. you know, that, you that's know, so hard for us to... Materialism, money, fame, status, social media, followers, you name it. These are all very what? thriving idols in our culture today. <laughs> we, um, we how even... do you live in a culture like that and still follow Christ? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, there's so much I could say there. I, I think, uh, so you, you sounds like you related to that girl and you can understand her, her kind of experience because you had a similar experience being becoming a Christian in France, different culture maybe. Um, and I do love what you say about culture and reading scripture because that is so important. We have to know that we come to it with a 21st century American mindset uh, for at least for me and for, and for many who listen here many of our friends. Um, but that's just a, it's just a reality. And so we have to try to take some of those things off and see and read, uh, what it was like, or we try to hear it, what, how it might've been for, um, a first century believer to, to hear a letter or to read Jesus and just hear how I've been really taken with this. just as an example, uh, Jesus is Lord, right? That was a political statement. That was not just like we read it and we go, oh, he's Lord of your life. Yay. No, no, no. This was a political statement. They were actually making a, this is like saying Jesus is president, right? Like that for an American is so just mind blowing. Like, what do you mean? He's not the president. No, Jesus is, he is the one who's in charge. That's why he's saying and not Caesar, not whoever the president is. That's a much bigger deal, right? And it hits us differently in the heart than than just, you know, the way we do it today. So anyway, that's my, that's my example. I think is totally, totally good. Um, I, I love it. Hey, I wanted to ask, one thing I always like to ask is, have you ever had a time, you know, it sounds like you wrestle with God a lot, but have you had a time since you became a believer when you really questioned whether he was there or like a dark night of the soul at all? Mm-hmm. Yes. Oh, let me count the ways. Um, <laughs> life with him is... Um, you know, I, I believe that sometimes seasons of relative darkness hot, uh, are the backdrop to light. And, you know, if you think wow. of a painting, 
sometimes the way as a painter that you're going to highlight a character is by having darkness around that person. Because if that person is dressed, let's say, in red, uh, but the background is red, that's not going to pop. But if the background is black, then all of a sudden the person in red totally pops in the painting. And so those seasons of darkness can sometimes, or they're the ones that train us to trust God because it's easy to trust him when all is going well. Uh, but seasons where, so I've had, you know, bouts of depression sometimes. Um, and some of them actually, probably some of the darkest seasons I've had where was where when I had to come to terms with truly believing that God had forgiven me for those initial seasons of mm. deep sin that I still lived in, even as a young believer, when I returned to France, those few, those, those first three or four years were not glorious. And as I said, when I was struggling with how can God forgive me because he's already, I've already accepted him in my life. How is he going to forget my future sins? Right. I mean, the ones that are past at that point, but uh, that are post um, my born again moment, if you will. Yeah. Uh, and I am, you know, to to think that God struggles to forgive us or sin is to have such a limited view of Him. Because yeah. uh, what, when you were saying when Christ is Lord, it's this is an um, an overarching statement that should awe us. So thank you for what you were saying. And so for me, yeah, it was coming to terms with forgiveness as a very self sufficient. I, I struggle. I've tr- struggled with self sufficiency, and to to truly surrender my self sufficiency and to say. My self-sufficiency has brought me to nothing but sin and destruction, even as a born-again Christian. Um, And and to embrace his love in my complete inability to earn it in any way, shape, or form, and to stop striving to earn it, but to truly just receive as a little girl on her daddy's lap, that has been a huge struggle for me. So it has led to some very dark nights, but... um, it's, I wouldn't trade it for the world. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, friends, I want you to hear that because it, this is one of the reasons I'd like to ask that question. And if you're a regular listener, you know that I ask, I try to ask that question every uh, time I interview somebody because it is a normal part of the journey is we, we struggle with these things. And I grew up thinking, if I'm really faithful, then my life is going to be great. Right. I'm going to have joy. I'm going to have a, that's the way it was presented to me, or at least the way I, the things I, I grabbed on the things and nothing can be further from the truth. Walking with God takes, takes energy. Like it's hard. It can be tough. Just sometimes. ask Jesus. I right. Mean, I mean, <laughs> he never sinned. And I'm sorry, but his life was not all roses by any means. I, I, it was, his life was a complete failure by human standards, Yeah. by human standards, you know, Caiaphas and Pontius Pilate, they won. Jesus lost. Yeah. But that is not how the world, that's not how God thinks. And so do not think that life will be easy if you follow hard after God. Jacob limped for the rest of his life. Expect a limp. 100%. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It And the reality is even in the garden, Jesus said, hey, I don't want to do this. Like, this is not really, can we maybe do something else? There's got to be something and yet not my will, but your will. And that's the posture that we have to take as, as believers even as we go into seasons that might be difficult, you know, I think right now with coronavirus and the way the world is, I don't know what will happen between the time we record this and the time it comes out. Right. But it, it it's hard, right? It's hard to, we're, we're all kind of grieving. We're all kind of going through things and yet is God still in control? How do we wrestle with that? I think it's important. And actually I love your moment. What you're talking about Jesus and Gethsemane was a foundational moment for me to realize that, 
Eric, Jesus asked if there was another way. In other words, Jesus in his weakest, hardest moment of temptation is asking God if there could be another worldview that would bring people to God. Jesus asked if there was another worldview, if some other yeah. faith system not based on his cross could possibly work to bring us to God. He asked for another way. So out of the worldviews, you know, out of the roads lead to Rome kind of worldviews, Jesus asked for another road to lead to yeah. Rome. Jesus wow. asked if there was a way to have a relationship with the Father apart from the cross. And God said, there isn't. There isn't. Even Jesus asked for another way. So if there was another way but Christ, <laughs> I think God would have given it. There isn't. But the fact that there is a way is mind-blowing. The fact that Amen. Jesus, through his agony, opened that way at great cost to himself. Life is never going to be easy. You know, uh, someone said, it doesn't cost you anything to accept Jesus. It costs you something to follow him. And it's going to cost you everything to surrender to him. Wow. When you surrender to him, he also walks in and surrenders the floodgates of heaven to you. But there might be a season of waiting and the waiting is intense. And with what we're going through with COVID, a lot of people, I think, are looking for another way. People are mm -hmm. looking for a vaccine, for masks. I have no idea what that is going to save us, right? Um, for rules and regulations and social distancing. And all of those things are good, but they are not going to save us. Because if something else besides Christ could save us, God would have given it. And wow. I'm not saying Jesus is the solution against the coronavirus. I mean, that sounds a little silly. But what I'm saying is clinging to him in our seasons of doubt and uncertainty when the world is shaking around us, that's the only safe foundation. You're not going to be safe because you get a vaccine. You're not going to be safe because you wear a mask. You're going to be safe because you trust in Christ. Uh, and then the peripherals will work themselves out. So don't... I didn't say don't wear a mask. I'm saying, you know what I'm saying. <laughs> I, I know what you're saying. Yeah, we, we got that. Absolutely. Yeah, that's been one of the disturbing parts of this whole thing. We don't have to go into that because I want to hear more about your podcast. So we're, we're almost uh, almost done, but I do. you started your podcast. We talked about a little bit Gospel Spice. I love that analogy of, hey, it's not just... Uh, you know, the garlic salt, but there's all these other flavors we can add in that is that is really great. Is that what you do on your show mostly? Absolutely. So my show is about two thirds solo teachings and then one third where I do interview very much like you're doing right now, where I bring in different spices, right? To just spice things up a little bit more with amazing guests. Um, and so, for example, just one quick example um, actually, just uh, this month, we're celebrating the one-year anniversary, and I have this amazing guest that came for a double episode, and she is airing this month, and it's Naomi Zacharias, the daughter of Ravi Zacharias, oh, cool. and she and I have kindred spirits because I have a passion to... Um, be part of the solution in our generation against human trafficking. So, and mm. she, she works with that through RZIM. And so um, she has some fascinating wisdom to give on that, but that's the interviews. But on the solo episodes, for example, one of the ways that I help you taste the spice is by giving you the moments where I've had an explosion of spice in my own time with the Lord. One example is we're all familiar with Jesus on Palm Sunday, right? He's riding on a donkey into Jerusalem. We've all heard the story. If you grew up in the church, you're probably, you probably think you know everything there is to know about Palm Sunday. The truth is what Matthew doesn't tell us when he's recounting that story, and he's not telling us because to him, it's so obvious. You know, one of the basic rules of writing is show, don't tell. 
Yeah. So there's a lot he's not telling us that he's showing us. But in a show, don't tell culture, you have to have the cultural grid to understand what's not being told because you're being shown. And if you don't have the cues, the cultural cues to get those clues, then you're missing out. And so Matthew and none of the other gospel authors tell us either. But when Jesus walks into Jerusalem on a donkey on Palm Sunday, he's actually reenacting the exact steps of a Jewish first century betrothal ceremony. Oh, wow. And we miss that. We yeah. don't know that because no one tells us. And we've lost 2,000 years of, of a time lapse. We've lost the culture. And so we don't know to read the story as actually giving us all of the clues we need to read this as a betrothal ceremony. So when Paul later on tells us Jesus is the bridegroom and we're the bride, he's not making this up. He's actually reading the cultural clues from Matthew and the other gospel authors. Oh, right. The story they're telling is a betrothal story. Therefore, Jesus is the bridegroom. And it all falls into place in massive ways. And so on a couple of episodes, we go over what is a Jewish betrothal ceremony and how Jesus follows the steps so much to the letter, Eric. It's not even funny. For example, just before, uh, and when I'm saying Palm Sunday, it starts on Palm Sunday. It's all the way to the Last Supper, that whole four days Sunday through sun, through Thursday, he reenacts all of the steps. And wow. one of the steps, one of the final steps is when the bridegroom-to-be has come to the bride-to-be house and he has asked her hand in marriage to the parents, they share a meal that is made of bread. They share a piece of bread that they cut and eat together. They, cut, they drink from the same cup of wine. And after they are done drinking from that same cup of wine, that is a uh, covenant relationship that is being made. At this point, they are legally betrothed and it's going to take a letter of divorce to undo this. But that's, you know what the bridegroom, you know what the typical words of the bridegroom are at this point? He puts down the cup that he and his bride-to-be just drank from. And he said, I am now going back to my father's house to prepare a place for you. And I will come back to take you to be with me so that you may be where I am. Because then what happens is that the bridegroom leaves the bride in her parents' home for about a year. And he goes back to his father's house where he's already he's still living. And he starts building an addition to his father's house. It takes him about a year. And so, by the way, the most wow. marriageable people were carpenters. Because they were really good at building a house for a wife. Yeah. And so Jesus, I'm telling you, there's no loose ends. And as the carpenter, he's going back. He's preparing a house for us in his father's house where there are many rooms. And he will come back when the betrothal ceremony and the betrothal season is over. And there will be a marriage. Wow. Okay. So the whole thing is a metaphor. Yes. Oh, man. All right, I have two degrees and in Bible. And so much more I'd, than I'd a metaphor, but among other things, it is. Yeah, yeah of course. Of course, it's also going to happen, but that's uh So wow, when John, uh, it's John 14, verses 1 to 4, I think, where Jesus, you know, says yeah. those very words, no one tells us these are betrothal covenant words, but everyone knows. Yeah. Everyone who's reading the original readers, they all know the... It would be like us, you know, you saying the Pledge of Allegiance without saying it's the Pledge of Allegiance. Of course, everyone knows what those words mean. Right. You don't need to tell me, I'm about to give you the Pledge of Allegiance. You just start saying it, and I know what you mean. Show, don't tell. 
I love that. Yeah, absolutely. So that definitely colors our, our reading of scripture. So, okay, the podcast is called Gospel Spice. People can find it any place they get their podcast. In fact, you're probably in the app right now if you're listening to this. So go ahead, just hit that search button and search up Gospel Spice. Listen to more of Stephanie. She's got some great insight. I think you can hear that. Um, Stephanie, you're also starting something new. So tell us about that and how people can find it. Yes. So if you go to gospelspice.com, you'll find the podcast, but you will find the umbrella ministry, Gospel Spice Ministries. So the podcast is one part of it. We also teach Bible studies around the world. Uh, a lot of our podcast auditors are coming and they are, so we have people doing the Bible studies from um, all over the world. And we are entering a new season in the Bible study just this month. And uh, so that's one thing we're doing. We have a private Facebook group. You are getting massive uh, in-depth teaching you're getting fellowship with other people from all over the world people that are seeking deeper intimacy with god and then we are also partnering with agencies that fight human trafficking i mentioned uh, wellspring international with naomi zacharias and so you'll find all of that information at gospelspice.com excellent very good well that's where people can find you uh thank you so much for sharing your story it's really helpful and fun to hear um the story of the first French Christian, and uh, <laughs> you hear that? I did hear there were quite a few awesome ones since, and I've, I've read them. Up. I'm actually in the process of writing a book about uh, famous French Christians uh, from ages past. So I love that. I love that. I appreciate your passion too for uh, French French speaking world. I have a friend uh, who was been on the show, Rob Karch. You guys can go look at that. I, I linked it up in the show notes. Who also has a passion for? He's in Quebec, but he. Uh, he wants, uh, you know, he wants to bring the gospel to to French speaking worlds, which is awesome. So we need it. We, bring it on. Amen. Amen. Well, very good. Uh, hey, thanks for being here. I really appreciate it. It's been a lot of fun. Thank you so much. So much fun for me. Thanks, Eric, for an amazing podcast that you have there. 